Join Greenbook at the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange Conference Series. IIEX is your global hub for connections, inspiration, and innovative solutions in market research. Visit greenbook.org events to learn more about events in Asia, the Americas, and Europe. Use the code PODCAST for 20% off general admission on all upcoming events. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Green Book Podcast. It is a pleasure to be here with you all today. I'm Karen Lynch hosting today, and I'm joined by three guests, which is really exciting for me. They've actually all been on the show before. Julian Daly is the founder and CEO of Savio. Julian, I'm going to start with you and let you introduce yourself to our audience personally. You can do a better job than I can most likely. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks a lot, Karen. I'm the CEO and founder of Savio. It's a network uh, to find flexible talent. And uh, in addition to finding professionals for work, Savio itself offers clients some solutions to their insight needs using AI itself. And as a little sideline, I also help other industries and businesses get into AI from a kind of a productivity and uh, process point of view as well. Well, it's great to have you here and have you back. I know that we'll probably put the last episode that you were on in our show notes. I know Lenny hosted you for a great conversation not that long ago. It's great to have you back. Our second guest, everybody, is Greg Archibald. So some of you have heard him on our show before as well. He is one of the two managing partners at Gen2 Advisors. Greg, I'm going to let you do the same thing Julian just did and introduce yourself to our audience in the way that only you can do best. <laughs> Thanks, Karen. I'm, I'm Greg, a managing partner at Gen2 Advisors, just repeating what Karen said. And uh, we are basically a management consulting company for the insights industry. And in that role, we work with a lot of different suppliers and brand organizations, helping them solve unique problems in the insight space. Thank you, Greg. It's good to have you back as well. Our third guest is actually somebody who you all know pretty well. So, you know, Lenny Murphy, he's the other managing partner at Gen2 Advisors, but he's also Greenbook's chief advisor for insights and development. And he's, you know, he's got a hand in Savio too. He's instrumental serving on the board right now, working regularly with Julian as well. And of course, he's our other podcast host. Lenny, it's good to have you here. And I want you to explain a little bit about why we want you on this panel too, having this conversation about AI. That is our topic of the day. Give us your thoughts. Well, thanks. Well, I asked myself the same question. Why does anybody <laughs> want me to participate? But this is obviously a topic we've been paying lots of attention to in both in my, my role within Gen2 and Green Book and as an advisor to many companies. It's the topic du jour. So I've spent a lot of time for the last eight months having many conversations with lots of folks on this. And I mean, more importantly, working with, uh, with Greg and others on thinking through the pragmatic components. So my... Hope for this uh, particular conversation, there's been lots of hype discussions and that maybe now we're moving into not necessarily, you know, Gartner says we're moving into the, the trough of disillusionment. Um, I prefer to think of it as the plateau of pragmatism. Sound bites. That we're, <laughs> yeah, there we go. Sound bite. You heard it here first. And Julian and Greg, I know from uh, working with them that, that we're all engaged in various ways and getting a handle on that now. What What is happening? Who's doing what? What are the business impacts that we are seeing and that we anticipate? And I think that's a piece of the conversation around AI that it's time for. Yeah, excellent. Thank you. So I'm, I'm glad you're participating in this conversation as well. Before we went live, friends, Lenny and I were having a conversation about the fact that Greg and I were just on a call 
that was a part of SMR's task force work, which was a SWOT analysis done kind of live with the SMR audience. People who called in were able to contribute whether they saw a strength in AI or some weaknesses in AI, opportunities and threats, et cetera. So Lenny and I were discussing the fact that that kind of shows you where we are right now. We're finally taking this step back to say, where are we with this? Where are we with this development? Greg, it's not on our, our brief of things to talk about. Do you have any high level takeaways from that conversation since that's the freshest thinking we've got? It just happened an hour ago. Absolutely. So I'm going to say that the biggest point that was made is this is impacting every step of the research process. It's being utilized by a lot of different companies, but there are you know, data quality, insight quality concerns. And all of those are kind of in the process of being resolved. They're not going to be resolved this week, but I think all of those things are going to be more unified and more resolved over the course of the next year or so. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I know you and I have talked recently about what happened at the end of November of last year. And now that we're ticking into fall, we're, you know, three quarters of the year into this. So it's it's been an interesting ride. So I'm glad we are where we are. I think that what would be really interesting to start this off, especially for you, know, you, Greg and Julian, is to share a little bit about your uses, kind of what you're seeing with your clients, the people that you're talking to, the people that you're advising. How are people using it effectively right now? So I think, first of all, it's, it's, um, it's a different thing to, to different people. You know, so very much follows a kind of early adopter curve in terms of you know, some people are seeing it from a very creative point of view. So they're looking at it and thinking, oh, there's things I couldn't do before that I wanted to do, but there was something stopping me because it was too complicated or it wasn't possible. And those people are using it for well, what I would say sort of creative tasks. And then there are some people who are using it because they've interpreted it as a, uh, a way to go faster. So they're using it as a productivity, time-saving kind of effort reduction type solution. And then there are those people who are kind of like at that outer edge. So they're kind of, you see, they're not on their radar or if it is on their radar, there's a kind of a blocker. So they're kind of resisting it. And to them, maybe they're using it in a more abstract way. as like a way to define what they do without AI. So it's sort of driving a kind of artisanal kind of like hardcore of people who are like, what AI shows is what I do is really good, you know, because it can't be done by AI. So it's being used for a slightly different purpose. I think, you know, given what I do, the most powerful group are the creative people, right? Because they are the ones who are actually sort of coming up with innovations and they're kind of pushing the frontier forwards. But I think the belly of the market is, is still in that productivity area where they're kind of like the simplest use case for it is sort of time saving and i think that's good in a way but it's also like a bit of a a warning sign because especially in the knowledge worker industry where you know time is money if everyone adopts ai for the purposes of saving time then in effect we do end up with a kind of a problem which is how do we cover our overheads you know like how do we as an industry adapt to like radical reductions in the time it takes to do things when our whole business model is built around how long does it take to do something. And that might leave us a little bit short and unable to adapt quickly enough. And we could lose good people from the industry because we see rapid price deflation. So I think 
that's a challenge, especially because the people who are kind of on the rejector end of things, where they warm up into it is they warm up into it through productivity. So actually, if we have a large number of people who are sitting on the edge going, oh, I'm not sure, I'm not going to use it, the first place they'll go is into productivity. And that, that could almost accelerate price deflation. Um, so although it's harder to do and it, revol- it revolves around sort of creative thinking, we must get to that creative thought. Otherwise, what we'll end up doing is rapidly commoditizing our industry, such as we might have seen, say, with like the huge growth of low-cost quant. You know, actually, like, you know, it was good for some, but it wasn't good all the time. And possibly the reason why AI comes along is because of some of the problems created by like the rapid growth of low-cost quant. So I see people using it for all different kinds of reasons, but the most interesting ones are the, are the innovations. Yeah, in the more creative space. Greg, how about you? I'd love to get your, your thoughts on that. What are you seeing out there? Uh, yeah, and I actually want to cover two topics with that very single topic question. Uh, yeah. <laughs> first of all, if I think about the research process, all the way from kind of the initial development of a hypothesis and study design and data collection, you know, the survey instrument, the data collection analysis, blah, 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 right? All of that middle kind of operational stuff, AI is picking up on, whether it's developing PowerPoint presentations, writing surveys, discussion guide screeners. They're not doing it completely and solely, but certainly it's a good starting point. You know, the data collection piece of it, you know, there's synthetic respondents and, you know, designing the analysis, all of that AI is stepping into our research processes. Where we still provide a lot of value is on that extreme front end and back end. What are the problems and what do we do about the problems? So I think, you know, if you had asked me this question, you know, three months ago, I would have given a different answer. But the things that we've seen happen over the course of the the past three months with the respondents, with the survey writing, with the PowerPoint presentations, all of these kinds of things, it's just really kind of start to finish the research process um, outside of, of the intellect that it takes to create the problem and solve the problem. Uh, one of the things that I did want to kind of tag on to with Julian is um, this idea of business operations. And it reminds me of when SurveyMonkey kind of came out and SurveyMonkey was absolutely loved by marketers. It was absolutely hated by market researchers because it took away kind of our power structure. And now we, you know, they're not a billion dollar company because of market researchers. They're a billion-dollar company because of marketers. And I think that we are going to see our industry change dramatically, to Julian's point. Kind of the business models up to date are not aligned to AI to any great degree. And with the democratization and the ease of access of this information, I think the world is going to look very different or that our industry is going to look tremendously different in just a small number of years, one, two, three years, something along those lines. Go for it, Lenny. I see you nodding. I know that you've got thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) This is your opening. (laughs) I always do. I mean, I absolutely agree with what what Julian uh, and Greg said. And actually, I really appreciate, Julian, that perspective on the, the business model component. It reminds me from that standpoint, 
it's not substantively different than the path that we have been on, right? You have been on this DIY and automation trend for, for quite some time, the democratization of insights, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that the real opportunity now, more to Greg's point of what we see the industry look like, it will be a continual acceleration of the of the technology companies because they are best positioned to house and manage data. And inherently, that is the power of these technologies. They will unlock the ability for us to synthesize information that we had been envisioning for years with big data and all that good stuff, but it was just too much of a pain in the butt, and we couldn't figure out how to make all the data work together. And now this technology does unlock that. So we will look at it. We'll see an ecosystem of different constituents that are focused on effectively data collection, data management, and data outputs. And the data outputs piece, to Greg's point, and I think to Julian's as well, that creativity component um, is where the full service industry uh, will continue to evolve and be focused on that. What's the business question and what the hell do we do about it? While that middle piece will just continue to grow as we've seen it growing, where technology owns the process with an additional aspect of now not just owning data collection, but unlocking data synthesis and, and analysis in a new way. So, you know, that'll be, it'll be interesting uh, to see how that plays. Now, the other piece though, uh, real quick that Greg mentioned synthetic respondents, you know, it's kind of like a laser, right? I, I've always heard the quote, I don't know who, who it came from, that the laser was a, a solution looking for a problem. I think some of these, some of these solutions that are now empowered will be a solution looking for a problem. And the idea of synthetic respondents, we already have it with visual intensity, you know, companies that, you know, that use early stage AI to model where the human eye is drawn and they map out and create the heat map without a human ever being involved. So I think we'll see that's the low hanging fruit applications. You know, what are the things that don't require a human in early stage optimization, concept optimization before we move into validation and testing? We'll see that evolve as we go. It's happening now. I, I want to hover there for a minute on on some of this 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 concept of synthetic respondents and even synthetic data. You know, shout out to you, Julian, because you you shared on your LinkedIn wall that you were going to be recording this episode. And you know, one of your one of your contacts, Margaret So, shared that she wants to get our point of view on synthetic data. And the quote I have is, "I'm shocked that anyone would use this for survey research. Modeling, okay, as we already make assumptions, but I think it's wrong to replace." consumers, people who actually use the product or service. So, so then goes on to say, makes no sense whatsoever. And I think there are ethical issues. So let's dig in. Greg, you're smiling. Let's just dig in and, you know, get Margaret some of the, the answers that she needs. And then Julian certainly chime in. Okay. So I think we're going to have a divergence of opinions on this. Um, <laughs> Good. Good. I love it. <laughs> and, and Lenny started it out with a solution looking for a problem. Nope. No, no. (laughs) So fundamentally, synthetic respondents are using human responses, just reorganizing them in a different way. So I don't want to make this look like humans are not involved in this. They are. That's where the information comes from. So these really are human responses. And the way it's being used today is not so much answering surveys. And if we think about the Likert scale, AI today doesn't do a very good job of answering a Likert scale. 
However, it does do a, a pretty good job of saying, you know, what's the importance of, I don't know, sustainability to moms that are buying diapers. It does a very good job of that. And it does a good job of that looking at it from different perspectives and creating personas of different viewpoints. So it's really quite solid. There's absolutely reasons to be concerned. There's things, you know, particularly around bias. But if I'm, you know, testing a survey, testing a discussion guide, a screener, all of those things, synthetic respondents can kind of show me where my gaps are. Is it going to get what I think it should get, right? So there will be a time in the not too distant future where the synthetic respondents will be more thorough and thoughtful than traditional respondents. Now, if we're talking about some very esoteric, very niche kinds of things, you know, uh, I did some work on this idea of unit of justice in elementary schools. AI couldn't help, you know, chat GPT couldn't help at all with that. But when it was unit of justice, it could. So there's applications for it. There's very good applications for it. And the over the course of the next few years or a couple of years or, you know, the way it's going, maybe a couple of days, uh, it's going to get tremendously better. But I do want to kind of underscore this, the idea that humans created the information. This is information coming from humans just organized in a different way. I'm going to jump in for a second to echo what Greg said. Not, I guess we're not rumbling, Greg. We'll have to find <laughs> another reason to rumble. I talked about this in a webinar last week. So within this edition of Grit, we had over 600 AI-generated completes. And we, added, we found them. And what the trigger for finding them was that the open ends were too damn good. They were very thoughtful. They were very long. And they were absolutely grammatically correct. Uh, so, so set aside, it's, it, that's fraud. We remove them from grit. That's a whole other conversation. We'll get into it another point. But while doing that, it's like, well, okay, this is synthetic respondents. Because somebody uh, or several somebody set up, they trained a model to be able to answer the survey using a very specific persona, and it's exactly what they did. Now, we'll talk about this more when we release Grit, too. We looked at a comparison, and that it's interesting that from a persona standpoint, those responses absolutely looked very different than the overall population. So that was another flag. So it, it just kind of opens the door to... We've seen it in action. It must have been pretty damn easy or else nobody would have done that for grit, right? To answer grit responses. So that's something to recognize. This isn't, it was not an incredibly complex thing to do. And it has its use cases from hypothesis testing, right? So in that particular scenario, it was trained for this specific persona. It answered the questions under that persona that was demonstrably different from the overall population when we pulled it out. But when I look at it just objectively, I had to like kind of appreciate what they did, right? It's like, don't mess with my survey, you, you know, buttheads. But it made sense, right? And it's like, I could see how this can be used in an ethical and appropriate way for testing different hypotheses, et cetera, et cetera, as long as you know that's what it is. My concern is that if we saw it in grit, what's happening within the rest of the sample population? And are we seeing more of this being deployed that is not 
not purpose-driven for a specific project, but is simply being delivered to drive fraud. And that's a whole other issue that, that I think we have to deal with front and center now. We're probably going to well. have to have an entire episode just debriefing what we learned, because Lenny, I think what's what's poignant about all of it is 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 what you're saying, which is we saw this within the industry in a very specific industry report with industry participants, and that felt unnerving. So imagine what the general population results might be to a survey and the, and the data cleaning efforts. You know, hats off to our research director for data cleaning efforts that are significant and worth every painstaking moment that he took to to clean our data. So anyway, Julian, I know you're chomping at the bit to, to chime in on this conversation. So what's on your mind here? I think that synthetic responders really goes right to the heart of the debate about AI in MRX, actually, even though it's a sort of a specific use case, I think it goes right to the heart of it because it's almost like the holy grail, isn't it? It's 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 like I've heard MRX CEOs in the agency world, in the in the, in the more traditional area, say, you know, if you end up with a substitutable responder, then actually it's the sort of end of the industry because it's all built around this kind of like continuous value chain of like asking real people questions and, as Greg alluded to, like the research process. And so I think it's 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 a really big question, and it's and it's also a sort of theoretical frontier, you know, in, in terms of. And I hear what Lenny says about you know, I've seen synthetic responders. It's interesting whether or not what you are actually seeing is the discussion of a topic through the medium of an imagined person, or whether you're actually seeing a synthetic responder. Like if you look at certain large platforms, I'm not, I, I won't name them, but um, and for example, you have like 50, 50 imagined people answer a survey, and you go through the line by line transcripts of like what those fifty people, how those fifty people, those fifty synthetic responders have answered those questions. Effectively, you've got fifty paraphrases of the same answer. And so actually what's happened is, you, is you've got 50 ways to say the same thing because the topic has been summarized and now we've got 50 ways of basically verbalizing that summary. Now, that's totally fine, but that's not a responder. That's a way of summarizing these topics through the medium of a synthetic persona. I think if you wanted to make synthetic sample, you've almost got to make a 1,000 people to find one person. Because you've actually got to, you've got to basically be prepared that if you were to find a real person, they would be part of a group and they would have their own unique anomalies. And that's what makes a responder valuable is that they won't always say what you expect them to say, or they won't always answer in the middle of the road. And so if you get, you know, why do we have six people, eight people in a focus group? Because they're not all saying the same thing, even if they've all been recruited to the same spec. And it's through that kind of collage of kind of dissonance around a middle ground that we find the ability to innovate around a middle ground because there's acceptable levels of difference between people that throw up opportunities, you know, for newness or for niches or for, you know, insight. And so I think that we've gone a long way of sort of saying, well, imagine, you know, like chat GPT, like you are a, you know, a single parent and you want to go on holiday. Like, you know, how are you thinking about the booking process? Well, okay. You know, my name's John. I've got two kids and 
we, we live in Brooklyn. And, okay, well, that's just you summarizing the problems of booking a holiday if you're a single parent. If I want to actually get synthetic responders, I need to kind of get a much bigger model where we create, you know, 10,000 of these people and we randomly pick one of them. I do think that is possible because I think that the ability to create, you know, more and more complexity into persona is going to come along. You know, I think that context is going to be like the size of memory chips, you know, 256, 512, 1 megabyte, 10 megabytes, 50, you know. But I, I also think that there is this thing which is like at the center of the atom, which is we need to manage that kind of chaos, that randomness, so that those synthetic responders are truly capable of saying something which is, which is unexpected and that they respond to current events. You know, So if there is a, a terrorist attack or there's a particularly hot day or there's a, a news event, that those synthetic responders would answer differently the day after it. And so it's a technical challenge, but it's possible. I think it's coming. And that is the big holy grail. Yeah. One of the questions we had is, you know, how do we ensure that the synthetic respondents are adapting to behavioral changes that people make every day? You know, the, the person booking the travel, you know, in a week, he might fall madly in love with somebody who wants to do all the booking. And the next thing you know, his behaviors are changed. He's out. He's not even in that business anymore. So how do we make sure as people's behavior changes that the, you know, the machines are being trained equally in a common way. So, you know, I talked about kind of esoteric topics and really this comes down to how, how broad an issue are we talking about in consumer behavior? And if it's a broad issue that changes slowly, it, it's not a big deal because uh, there's enough information to see some nuance. Where things start to become more difficult is in the more extreme situations, as Julian was alluding to, and used a phrase, um, you really need that dissonance for, for innovation. And Julian, I actually wrote that down. And that's there's absolute truth in that. But when the innovation is marginal and the topic is broad, it's identifiable. When the innovation is extreme, you know, if we think about, you know, the, the microwave or, you know, the first airplane or something like this, where it is a truly new innovation, those are not going to come from anything appearing to be synthetic. It's going to come from people having a real problem or new technology that will make it available. So big picture, kind of staying on top of trends, if they're broad enough, we, we do have a really good source of information. If they're very narrow, it really does take that human-to-human -human interaction. From a pragmatic standpoint, I agree with everything everybody said. The opportunity here in the, the research industry is for panel companies. And I mean real panel companies, not river sample. Folks that are building proprietary, large proprietary databases of information of real consumers. There is, is a company called Appen. Uh, Appen is the largest provider of AI training sets in the world. What most folks don't know is that Appen is also a huge buyer of surveys. So they engage with companies and participate folks in, in surveys or in ethnography or various and sundry research tasks that feed these AI training models. And they've been out there for years. So uh, they're a you know billion dollar market cap business. And now 
there are many research panel companies that are looking at effectively saying they have AI training sets internally through capturing this profile information and pattern of responses of consumers. And that's where we get to that point of being able to not just have a, like we had with Grit, which was a very specific persona. And you were right, Julian, every, the other piece of the open ends were, they were all basically saying the same thing in slightly different ways. So you know, that was the other, other giveaway. So, so I think that, that tech, we, we are there of having that capability as the industry shifts back towards proprietary panels. I think we will also see the building of client-owned panels for this very purpose. So, and look, we've already seen it with programmatic advertising, right? This is not, it's not a much of a stretch for look like modeling. It was done to drive advertising across Facebook and the web, et cetera, et cetera. It's not that, that big of a difference. Uh, it's just on steroids. Well, let's face it, like, you know, I mean, we, we are effectively doing it anyway, right? Which is that when we use a focus group to test an advert, we're saying these people are going to stand in for millions and millions of people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what we do, right? We're not doing census. We do, we do, we do sampling of populations yeah. uh, to try and predict larger behavior. Yes. Yeah, great point. So it's, it's not necessarily a new thing. It's just whether or not we can trust, you know, just taking away that last plank. Ironically, it might be more powerful because, you know, what, what we tend to find is that all kind of research outside of maybe kind of exceptional circumstances is somehow constrained by time and money, you know? So, so why do we do, you know, four focus groups and not eight and not 16 and not 32? It's because we don't have that much money. It doesn't make any sense. It takes too long. So, you know, these are some of the constraints that we learn to live with when we, we, we want to test something that we are going to extrapolate onto a national market or a global market, etc we may be able to go beyond those constraints if we can have, you know, 10,000 people who, you know, are good enough, maybe even better at um, overcoming some of those constraints and, you know, get to better outcomes altogether. But it is a, it's a theoretical frontier, I think. Otherwise, we end up with a big sort of propagation bias, which is like, if we just use Facebook A-B testing for our advertising, we end up with the same customer over and over and over again. We don't actually achieve our TAM because it just keeps showing the same advert to the, to the same people over and over again. So you don't want to get that effect in research, which is, you know, you end up seeing that synthetic responders tend to like certain things and certain things tend to work well in synthetic tests and other stuff that then goes on to be successful always fails in synthetic tests. And, but that's not to say that that doesn't happen in research already anyway. Well, I think what that means, I think that means that we're entering into the golden age of qual. Because now, one thing pragmatically AI has unlocked is the a lot of the barriers of scalability and qualitative research. So it just does that really easily. So so I think we're we're moving there, and the focus will be on the why, and collecting the information on the why at scale to help build that nuance of those models. The other pieces I think that we're we're also going to look at at broader scale adoption of behavioral measures in various and sundry ways being built into almost every research project for the same reason to get to that you know that that emotional context to build out these models more efficiently and effectively so it's exciting times for technology providers in the industry if they figure out how to, to integrate and work together effectively to help unlock this potential 
So let me build on on what you just uh, what well, what both of you just said, but uh, really kind of around the emotional context and qual. If I think about all of this in kind of a human experience way, you know, we have this amazing data processing engine at the top of our neck, which is, you know, one of the greatest inventions ever. But then we have inputs into that. We have seeing, hearing, touch, smell, taste as kind of the the main ones. And if we think about the data that is available to us right now, it's really a lot about what we're seeing and reading, right? The other one is what we're hearing. Yeah, what, what's playing? What are the advertisements? What are, what are the podcasts? What are the news programs? All of that kind of stuff. So a lot of these models have been built around a ton of this information. This, not this. Well, it could be this. But what's not there yet, though, is touch, smell, and taste. So once those senses are covered, the ability to understand the emotional context and the environment is going to improve dramatically. Now, some of those are being built now. I saw a, a site called Taste GPT. I didn't look at it with any in any depth, but now we'll start to be able to create an entire human experience synthetically. And talk about a depth of qual and being able to get to a much deeper emotional context, being able to understand those emotions is going to improve dramatically. I mean, I, I want to segue here as I'm watching the clock into the flip side of, of what we're talking about is the, the training of the machines and go to kind of the up the, the upskilling of the humans doing the research, right? So we've talked a lot about synthetic respondents, but there's this other part of it that has to, other part of this whole equation, which has to do with the human that is going to bring some balance to what we're learning. And, you know, Greg, to your point, thinking about once we bring in sensory testing and all of that to kind of an AI level, everything will change. So how do we get to the balance of what a human can contribute to the analysis versus what these models are going to be capable of doing for us at great scale and, you know, with great efficiencies? So the the big piece there, if I look at the process, right, the future of market researchers will be prompt engineering. Uh, it'll be a big, big piece of the job. If I look at what we really do as our jobs is to try and identify solutions to problems. And that's 100% our job. In that context, nothing really changes. To date, and I don't see it happening in the, the near term, we can get some information, we can get some insights from uh, utilizing different AI tools, but we can't get a solution to a problem. So what I mean by that is, let's say, you know, we come up with, you know, people are unhappy with, I don't know, Bluetooth speakers. So now it's someone's job to go, okay, so what is the state of Bluetooth technology? What's the next technologies? What are competitors doing? What is the economic environment? You can kind of think of it as, you know, Porter's Five Forces, whatever that thing is. Uh, what are the capabilities of my organization to develop something? All of these are not going to be picked up in this solution to a problem from an AI piece. 
that is the important part of what we do. And that's, that's the training that, that you go through a lot in you know, the, the MBA programs and these kinds of things. So I think those skill sets will become more important. And the operational piece, it was just going to become more <laughs> machine driven. I tend to agree. I think that the the um, the future probably can be seen by looking at other industries that have gone through similar changes. If I think about you know the design and illustration industry, the arrival of something like Mid Journey or Stable Diffusion, you know, Dali, you know, it's 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 a much more of a hammer blow than it is for MRX because it's like you know there used to be people who would get paid for weeks to create some of the stuff that comes out in seconds now. And so, you know, they are going through a similar change, but theirs is much more dramatic and much more rapid. Similarly, you know, we all saluted when automation took hold of, you know, let's say the automotive industry and robots started making cars and it was all totally fine. You know, similarly with uh, automations in warehouses and and recommendation engines for for commodities like car insurance and etc so and probably the biggest change was you know the majority of the stock exchanges like automatically traded you know uh, so what about all those people that used to go around picking stocks and you know having little offices where people would come in and ask people to do stuff for them that's all gone now because we've got an app on our phone that automatically places all of our savings and so i think the answer is probably out there somewhere but i do agree with greg that we'll probably have a kind of shifting up the ladder, hopefully, so that there'll be people who look back and say, you know, the previous generation used to do the research. Now I just use the research. and I'm doing something else with the research. I'm not making it myself. And hopefully that's a good thing. But I think just like we find change difficult in many areas of life, there are people who've carved out an identity doing certain things and they chose those things and they're part of a group and that's who they are and AI is proposing to, to do it for them. And so, so that's problematic and that's, that's a kind of a moral ethical question about how fast we let that go. But as I say, you know, we're lucky to have people like Green Book to represent the industry and to represent those concerns because I think for the illustrators and the designers, you know, AI tore through that industry very, very quickly and there probably weren't as enough safeguards and rails there. But I don't see that happening within the MRX community because the sector seems to be a much more responsible set of players. Well, let's let's hope. I, I love what you were just saying, Julian, about AI helping the research become more usable, more actionable, and, and maybe people are actually going to take the findings from some AI-supported research and act on them quicker because I think that a lot of frustration for many, many researchers is that we did all this work and nothing's happening as a result of that. You know, implications are or recommendations aren't taken. They're not, people aren't doing the work after the fact because for whatever reason. Anyway, so so maybe that will be a part of this is the efficiency is not just in executing the research, but in, in making it actionable and actually, you know, changing things as a result of what they're learning. Lenny, I know you, um, you have something else on your mind right now. So I'm going to start our last round, which is, you know, what else do you want to add uh, before we wrap up? Or is there a question I haven't asked? What are your thoughts? I actually don't. I'm sitting here, one, being very appreciative that I'm glad that I get to work with uh, with all three of you every single day because, damn, you're smart. <laughs> um, 
the uh <laughs> come on Lenny, that's just go my, on <laughs> thank you that's my yeah no that's my last nice comment to anybody today no more no i think this is a it's a great topic and you know we, we've joked about you know all oh, the drinking game talk about ai take a drink but it is a an incredibly disruptive technology and we're foolish to think even if the gardeners say no we're moving into the trough of disillusionment yeah for the next week and then here comes the next innovation right so we're going to continue to see lots of, of further disruption, more adoption. It, it just is. And it's not going to go slow like the shift to online or the shift to mobile. That's already sailed. You know, we're, we're talking months now, not years. And I'm glad that we've got great, smart people that are engaged and paying attention and trying to help the industry navigate through this. So uh, it's been a great conversation. I'm thrilled to be a part of it. Uh, well, of course we are too. Julian, any any last words you'd like to add here? Well, I mean, I was at IIEX Austin this year and I was struck by the different speeds of adoption, I suppose, from the different presentations that were given. You know, some people were um, at the very beginning, you know, they were you know, having big slides about, I've, I've asked chat GPT this and I've given it six out of 10. You know, other people like Yabble were on stage with, PNG talking about, you know, fully integrated solutions that were at scale. I suppose the question is like, how can we help people move along and kind of overcome some kind of ambivalence that might in the end mean that they kind of end up becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, that they end up getting left behind, not because AI is going to kill them, but because somehow they've given up, you know, there's a great story about a bunch of people that crashed out of a plane in South America and um, some people survived but most people died and they asked a psychologist to, to look into it and his report was actually why was it that so many people died not why was so many people survived because actually the jungle is neutral you know and it was the people that decided that the jungle was going to kill them who gave up and then they died whereas the people who said actually the jungle is full of like food and water and shelter and if we follow the animal tracks, we'll get out of here. And that's what happened. So they, the people that died, many of them didn't have to die, but they gave up and that's what killed them. And so if there's any advice, I, I guess, from Green Book's perspective on how to help people stand back and take a positive view, then I think that could really save some people from sort of giving up and actually you know, experiencing the fulfillment of their belief already that like it was here to kill me and it killed me. Just to build on what Julian was just saying, you know, our AI event, which is coming up soon and I think will be airing, will be um, happening on September 7th and 8th, which will be after this episode airs. Natalie, our producer, will put that in the show notes as well. But at that event, hopefully we can we can help them so that they become kind of survivors of this disruptive moment in time, Julian. So thank you. Greg, go ahead. Share before I before I bring us to the close, share your final thoughts as well. Yeah, so just kind of building on what Julian said, you know, all the organizations, Green Book and IIEX and SMR and ARF and Insights Association are all doing things to help the industry take advantage of those things. And I'm going to kind of lighten it up a little bit from Julian's example and just remind people that in the 80s, there was a band called Timbuk3. And the way that I'm looking at the <laughs> this change that's happening is, you know, the future's so bright, I got to wear shades <laughs> yeah now whip out the uh, the uh, harmonica there that's great Greg, you gotta add the harmonica oh so. i love those <laughs> pop culture references that age us it's just time time and time again that that comes up gentlemen <laughs> <laughs> anyway 
Well, no, I think there is so much to look forward to. And, you know, I think that when we were talking earlier about some of the challenges with my creative problem solving hat on, I'm always thinking, how might we instead of instead of looking of the oh, no, what if these are the risks, these are the threats, these are just challenges, but how might we, you know, seize those opportunities and plow forward into into the future? Because there are skills to be learned, and there are opportunities to be realized. And plenty of challenges to overcome if you have the right mindset. So thank you, Greg, for your optimism. That is really all the time we have for this episode today. This was a long one, gentlemen, but I want to thank each of you for your time. I want to thank James, our audio editor. Thank you so much for what you do. Natalie, our producer, thank you for what you do as well. I also want to say a special thank you to SurveyMonkey, our sponsor for this episode. Thank you for supporting us and to our listeners, of course. Without you, we wouldn't be doing this, and we're grateful for your listenership, your time, and your attention each week. That's all she wrote for today, folks. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Join Greenbook for the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange. This global conference series, also known as IIEX, is where connections are made, inspiration is found, and innovative solutions are discovered. With more than 90% of attendees using IIEX Insights to shape strategic business decisions, the return on investment is undeniable. Whether you're in Asia-Pacific, North America, Europe, or Latin America, IIEX is your gateway to the latest market research best practices, tech innovation, and strategies for transporting insights into action. Nurture your career and business with insights from across the globe. And here's a bonus. Use the special code PODCAST to save 20% on general admission for all IIEX events. Visit greenbook.org events today to learn more and register. See you there.